Greetings again, everyone. A couple of three points of news to tell you about and those on the tape program. The last few days we've had our computer delivered. It's in the room in here behind the wall to my right, which used to be the press room. And it's fantastic the way technology marches along and high tech seems to change and things become obsolescent very, very quickly. In 1981, I believe it was 81, was it 79 when Gerald uh, Dower purchased this equipment? So it's, uh, it was purchased a year after we came over here to Tyler. He paid a third of a million dollars for that equipment that's in the next room. Now, that means that it cost as much as this building did to build when it was new. And yet today, believe it or not, that equipment in there is virtually worthless so far as trying to sell it as used computer equipment on the open market. So what, I don't know that it's totally worthless, but I mean it would command a very small price, only a fraction of, of that amount of money. But Mr. Dower is able to evaluate that perfectly legal and fair and square according to certain parameters laid down by the IRS and to take that off of his income tax for the next X number of years to come because of a donation to a charitable organization. I might add that it's the very same computer that we've been using for all of these years. He is a local businessman, and he was using this computer, and he had on it the entire Smith County records and a couple of hospitals and schools and the police department and all kinds of businesses around town, just like we had terminals with operators sitting there handling their business or their payrolls or even checking a crook into the jail. We could go down there and visit him, and he could punch up how many arrests there were the night before. And so this computer was able to take care of every bit of that, but we also were standing in line on a time-sharing program, and oftentimes uh, when our operators were trying to interrogate the list or were trying to perhaps put a new name on as a result of a telephonic request for literature, uh, the computer would have to just wait a while because there's a certain delay if other people are having access to the computer, and we would sort of get in line with the other users. Now, all of that will be over. We will be saving somewhere around twelve to $1,500 a month. We were actually paying uh, $3,000, I'm sorry, $3,000 a month that we were paying Gerald Dower for the timesharing, and we will own the computer. And to us, it's still worth that kind of money, even though it's an older generation, and he is now buying a brand new computer that is lighter and I guess does more things. but. This one should last us until we get up to about a million or better on the mailing list, and maybe even beyond that. So there will be some maintenance, and there's going to be an additional electrical and air conditioning load in conjunct uh, conjunction with it, but it's a tremendous blessing to be given something that only a few years ago cost uh, a third of a million dollars. Now, we're also, of course, having a, a very fine family. You know Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Chris Patton, uh, Chris and Denise Patton over North Carolina are arranging to donate some properties, quite a number of acres down south on this main highway that runs right across in front of the door out here on the Jacksonville Highway. And at some point in time, hopefully that property will become used by the church, who knows, maybe for a new office building, maybe some point in time downstream, three, four, five, six years from now, uh, God will show us that we must build a ministerial training center or a home life center, or an academy, or a small college, but sooner or later uh, this work has got to have a training center for its ministry. And that may be the very germ or the beginning of something like that developing. I'd like to announce a new hire as well. We have asked that he come over here, a man whose articles you have read, who teamed up and wrote some things uh, 
teamed up. He's written them by himself, basically. Mr. Vance Stinson of Alabama, you may have read the one he did on the Trinity, and there's an article or two by him in past issues of the International News, and is an accomplished professional writer. He's been the editor. He does it all. He does the typing and the, the copy, proofreading, and the layout, and the paste-up, and all that for a small-town newspaper. He's the editor of a newspaper himself. And he's going to come on the staff as an editorial assistant and assist both Mr. Dart and me in our very large writing load. And we have an awful lot of writing to do and a great more in the offing that I hope to be able to do that we can get done. I want to talk to you today about a letter I received. I'm probably going to have to take two sermons to answer it. And I'm doing so deliberately because I hope that perhaps Mr. Stinson, when he comes over here, can help me do something else in an editorial fashion. That is, to take certain of our sermon tapes. Over the past many, many years, we have a complete room full of hundreds of sermons back there. Many of them are on doctrinal or historical subjects. Some of them would lend themselves to articles or even to booklets if they could simply be transcripted by a secretary who could type every word and then a good editorial assistant could simply take all of the extraneous and the chaff and when you'll deviate off and this and that and the other side issue that really is not valid to your point, reorganize it and put it on Mr. Dart's desk or mine and let us touch it up and redo it and do whatever we have to do editorially and we will have an article or a booklet that I can begin to offer on television. And by the way, uh, we were somewhat over 820. Has anybody got a count on the number of calls to this moment? It's over 900. I'm dumbfounded. We were trying to experiment this morning. And uh, two years ago, when I did that program on Easter, we had a record breaker, over 1,000, I think, uh, telephone calls from one program. Well, I had done another program on Easter, and I looked at that one. Uh, my son Mark let me look at the wrong one, apparently, because I thought that was the one I had done. And so a little over a week ago, I did another brand-new program on Easter and announced the new Passover booklet, and we only got around 350 or 400 calls from that program. And we began to wonder, well, what was the chemistry of that particular program that I did a couple of years ago on the subject of Easter that was one time played completely out of season, I think in the middle of the summer, by mistake? I think the station still had a copy of it, and our tape didn't get there on time, and so they just yanked off the shelf a tape that they happened to have, and here it was maybe August or whatever it was, and they put this Easter program on, and we had eight or 900 telephone calls in the middle of summer when I'm advertising something on Easter and on Christmas. And that was phenomenal, and I thought, well, what is it about that particular program? And I couldn't figure it out. Well, Mr. Dart suggested, why not try an experiment? and run it again, back-to-back, back, one week after I had just done a brand-new television program on the subject of Easter and the Passover. Now, last week, I did not advertise the Real Jesus book, book but I did advertise a brand-new booklet with a color cover that you'll see out on the desk out here on the Passover, and we get about 350 calls. We cranked up this old tape and sent it up to WGN, and I think the tone was very friendly, and it was unthreatening. It was just a kind of a chatty kind of a program about the subject of Easter and bunnies and eggs and where it came from and on and on. But I really did go through a great deal of detail about what they would find in the Real Jesus book. And I talked a great deal about the literature and how it's free and you'll never get a bill and on and on and on. And for some reason, even though the, the, the subject material is almost identical, 
just to show you with what is offered and the way you introduce it and how long you spend on the literature and perhaps the tone of voice, whether or not you're friendly or whether or not you seem to be threatening or putting it down, whether you're saying Easter is pagan or whether you're just like chatting with someone in their living room and just talking it over, uh, we get 800, 900 and some calls on one program and 350 on the other. So it does pay to go back and study uh, the chemistry of some of these programs and find out why they succeeded. And I'm very much looking forward to having Van Stinson over here to help me because I'd like to crank up some of the old articles that we've done in past years on anableps or ants in amber or migratory fish and waterfowl or the monarch butterfly or the, the archer fish or whatever, the angler fish, and put these on television and have some colorful brochures to put out there. And I think we're going to see increasing record-breaking mail when we begin to do that and have the kind of literature that people will really respond to. In one sense of the word, I feel like apologizing for the subject I'm about to address today because with all of the terrorism going on and mass bombings and people being blown out the side of aircraft and servicemen being killed in West Berlin with a bomb that went off there yesterday in uh, a place frequented by American military personnel, uh, you would think I ought to be talking about falling oil prices and OPEC and the devastation of the Texas economy and Gaddafi and uh, the Red Brigade and the Hotbader-Meinhof gang and worldwide terrorism and what's happening in, in global conditions and biblical prophecy. So my apologies because I'm not going to talk about that today, but I am aware of it, that it's out there. But in a two-part sermon, it will take two parts, I do want to address an issue that I have not spoken on in many, many years, not since organizing as the Church of God International have I addressed this subject. I'll introduce it by a letter I received on March 12th. Garner Ted Armstrong, Worldwide Church of God, Box 2525, Tyler, Texas, from a lady in Monticello, Kentucky, who was not all that happy with me. Dear Mr. Armstrong, I have a question for you to answer for me. I have a sister-in-law and her husband that go to your church. I'm not sure which church it is they go to, because she addressed me as being over the Worldwide Church. But I have a sister-in-law and her husband that go to your church. They were coming to visit my family, so I wanted to have a meal ready when they arrived at my house. Now you're way ahead of me. <laughs> I had fried a platter of country ham. When they got there, they said they could not eat pork. In a little while, they asked my husband if he would like to have a cold beer. Would you explain to me why your people cannot eat pork meat but drink alcoholic beverages? Thank you signed, and so on. Now, I'll tell you, that is perplexing the people in this world, that they will sit there and hear this lady is hospitable. Can you imagine her, her, her perplexity now? Because she's expecting relatives whom she loves, and you get excited when sister-in-law and the husband are coming, and you, you vacuum around in unusual places and put things away in the closets you don't normally maybe put away, and you're really getting all ready, and she's in the kitchen laboring. She probably went down and picked that country ham out so lovingly with her own hand. I want to get one of those lean ones, those deals you see in all in these beautiful uh, housekeeping, good housekeeping ads on the big silver tray with a kind of burnt, like a, you know, they have a pattern on it like it had been cooked in a, in a waffle iron or something on this ham. <laughs> And I don't know why they always cook ham that way, but you know what I'm talking about. They cook it with these patterns, crisscross pattern, like it had been smoked or something. And I'm sure she lovingly prepared a, a real great meal. She thought they'd smell that when they came in the drive, you know, and come in there and sit down. Well, uh, we can't eat pork. You know, that's just really terrible. That must have hurt her feelings very badly for her to write this letter to me. 
Well, it's a fair question, and I've already answered her letter, and uh, the tape is in there. It hasn't been typed yet, and we're, we're going to send that on its way very shortly. But why not explain why it is that we drink alcoholic beverages, but we don't eat pork and various other products? I think that's a fair question. Now, I'm a creature, just like you, of appetite. And I ate breakfast this morning and had a very light lunch of chicken soup. Now, Benny would not have joined me in eating chicken soup because Benny Sharp grew up on a chicken farm <laughs> up in Arkansas, and there were tens of thousands of chickens, and he learned things about chickens, what they do when one of their number is injured, uh, the various diseases from which they die, uh, how they will trample one another to death and suffocate each other, how they will peck their own little ones to death, and on and on. And he, he just got to the point where after you have wrung the necks of thousands of chickens, and after you've seen tens of thousands of them killed, and after you've smelled the peculiar smell of chicken feathers when wet, hot water's been put on them, for years and years as a young boy, and when you've been told by your parents, get out there and feed them chickens, you know, I mean, when this has happened over and over and over again, Benny cannot stand chicken. He actually will look the other way when he drives by a Colonel Sanders. He, he cannot stand it. So I enjoyed a little bit of uh, chicken soup. Now, I want to prove to you in what I'm about to talk to you about today that whether or not God says it is clean or unclean has absolutely nothing to do with your taste or with your appetite or with the visual perception of the way food is prepared or presented to you as to whether you think it is palatable and edible or not. I'm going to show you, as a matter of fact, that there are things which Almighty God says are perfectly fine for you to eat, which will turn your stomach, which you could not stand if I served you up a plate of them today. So, mere appetite and the way it's presented to you in the magazines, women's magazines, TV ads, supermarket advertising, you know, nothing is better presented, it seems, than seafood and clams on the half shell and lobster and, and shrimp a la whatever, uh, Louisiana or uh, some of the gumbos and all of that that people are really into around here. Seafood is tremendously popular in East Texas. Now, seafood does not mean bass, generally, or cod, or fish with fins and scales. It means bottom-dwelling creatures like shrimp and lobsters and clams and, and sea snails and things of this nature. But isn't this a Jewish custom I'm talking about? Well, let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis and see the very first place in the Bible where any statement at all about what is clean and what is unclean is mentioned. To skip along to the very beginning of the place where we come to without having a lot of background material because of lack of time, in the seventh chapter of the book of Genesis, Noah is told to take, verse 2, of every clean beast, sevens, by sevens, meaning seven pair, of every clean beast you shall take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, so seven pair of male and female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Now, right there we have absolute proof of something that is essential for you to understand. And that is that the subject of clean and unclean has utterly nothing to do with the Levitical priesthood. It has nothing to do with Moses. Moses had never even been heard of, except maybe in God's plan, Moses was planned to be born at some point in time, thousands of years downstream. But this is Noah, and this is before the flood, 
And this is in the first one-sixth of all of human history, long before there was ever a, you know, an Israel or a Judah or a house of Judah or a house of Israel or a Levitical priesthood, and I won't belabor the point, but this certainly antedates by an awful long time anything to do with the Old Covenant. It's long before the Old Covenant was ever proposed, long before Sinai, long before Israel and Egypt, long before anybody named Levi had ever been born, or his progenitors, or his ancestors, his ancestors, and so on. Of fowls of the air also by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. And then he said in a certain amount of time he was going to destroy everything, so Noah did according to what God commanded him, and you can read it all. Now in verse 8, of clean beasts, and of beasts that are not clean, it goes on to say again that he did this, and that they all went in, the two... Uh, humans with their family and then finally it rained the flood comes along and everything was destroyed now in the 8th chapter verse 20 and 21 you see one of the reasons why there were seven pair of clean and only one pair of unclean Noah built an altar unto the eternal and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar he may have sacrificed doves bullocks lambs whatever but he sacrificed of the clean beasts. And the Eternal smelled a sweet savor. And the Eternal said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing, or everything living, as I have done. So we have there in long pre-Levitical time a statement in the word, the word of God that there was clean and unclean recognized by the patriarchs known to Noah, and of course, therefore, to those who would have come after him. Let's turn to Leviticus, the 11th chapter now, and also the others, you know, parallel chapter is Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, and just look a little bit at this, because we probably haven't read it for many, many years. The Eternal spoke unto Moses and to Aaron, saying unto them, Speak to the children of Israel, chapter 11, verse uh, 1 and 2 of the book of Leviticus. These are the creatures, and the word is nephesh, or beasts, which you shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Whatsoever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, and chews the cud among the beasts, that shall you eat. As you know, cows have four stomachs, not just one like us carnivores do. They've got four. And the one is to store all the fodder, and I don't know the process of all of them. You can go read it, and it's quite technical. It's quite interesting the way the stomachs are arranged and the way they kind of halfway regurgitate it, kind of makes you sick to think about it. But when a cow is sitting out in her field chewing its cud, it is taking time to chew the food that it's been cropping on and grazing on all these hours and gets it back up, chews it, mixes it with the saliva, and then it goes for some reason, the bowels open and close, and it's all rather miraculous, into a completely different stomach. And so the cow is completely and wholly fit for us to eat. The milk is good to drink. The flesh is good to eat because it is cloven-footed or parts the hoof, as it says, and chews the cud. Nevertheless, verse 4, These shall you not eat of them that chew the cud, or them that divide the hoof, as the camel, because it chews the cud, but does not divide the hoof. They have a kind of a, of a fleshy kind of a foot that you can look at that actually seems to have toes, but it's all connected with a soft, big pad that uh, if you've ever ridden on a camel, as I have done a time or two over in the Middle East, and they're a really smelly, strange, evil-looking beast, but they're a good beast of burden in the Middle East. We used to have them in America for a time, at the time of the uh, Civil War and thereafter, in the southwestern desert, and right here in the state of Texas, and they wandered all the way out to Arizona, because some people actually had camel trains uh, trying to pack things across our southwestern wilderness. And the coney, now that should read, rock badger, 
but it also includes that type of a rock dwelling uh, like a marmot or a badger, that type of a hierarchies. Uh, we think of them as, as kind of like a rat and like a ground squirrel because he chews the cud but divides not the hoof. He is unclean unto you. And the hare, rabbits, because he chews the cud, and you can watch rabbits doing that, but divides not the hoof. They have a little paw, just like a dog or something like that. He is unclean to you. And the swine, or the pig, though he divides the hoof and be cloven-footed, yet he chews not the cud, he is unclean to you. Of their flesh shall you not eat, and their carcass shall you not touch. They are unclean to you. Now there are a few points to mention in passing. This is long before there's ever any knowledge among the human race of a thing called a germ. The idea of bacteria is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. God did not reveal bacteria in the Bible. That was for Pasteur and for people in modern times to discover with the use of powerful microscopes and laboratory techniques. The idea that ground-dwelling marmots or ground squirrels in California are susceptible to carrying fleas which transmit the bubonic plague through their bite, completely not mentioned in the Bible. But the concept of not touching the flesh of these animals, of not putting your hands on a fur-bearing, ground-dwelling uh, coney or a badger or a rabbit, an animal that is in the ground and that may actually carry fleas or have certain diseases, uh, perhaps the reasons as to why that is done is not mentioned in the Bible, but they were told not only not to eat them or to eat their flesh, but not even to touch the animal. These, verse 9, shall ye eat of all that are in the waters. Whatsoever has fins and scales in the waters, in the seas and in the rivers, them shall ye eat. And all that have not fins and scales in the seas and in the rivers, of all that move in the waters, and of any living thing which is in the waters, they shall be an abomination unto you. Now, in latter scriptures, in the book of Ezekiel and elsewhere, even back in the book of, of Revelation, you will see that there are those who have eaten what is called the abomination, or people who have ingested the abomination. And it will always be referring, basically, to sea food or to bottom-dwelling creatures that do not have fins and scales. They shall even be an abomination unto you. You shall not eat of their flesh, but you shall have their carcasses in abomination. Whatsoever has no fins nor scales in the waters, like eels and uh, sea snakes and catfish, sorry, East Texans, but uh, that happens to be true, that shall be an abomination unto you. Now, a lot of people have gone way off trying to prove why God has made this distinction. I can stand before you and say, I don't have the faintest idea, because I do know one thing. It has very little to do with their diet. You can feed catfish in catfish farms on the very same fish uh, or the same feed or the same pellets that you'll feed bass. You could feed catfish on food from your table, and they would grow quite happily and would love what they eat. But in the wild, they basically will eat uh, decaying and dying and dead fish and things like that, like a turtle will. They feed on the bottom, and they kind of feed among the muds and all of that, and they will eat leeches and various strange-looking creatures. But, you know, fish will eat insects, and they will eat worms, and they will eat other fish. So the diet of these creatures has nothing to do with whether or not they're clean. A bird, even a chicken, can actually eat carrion. A chicken is not a carrion eater. That's not its habitual diet. It's insects and grains and grasses and so on, as we know, and seeds. But they will peck one another, and they will eat flesh if you give them the opportunity. 
and they will become a carrion eater on an occasion. So it has nothing to do with what they eat. And a lot of people have gone into the fact that a swine eats this or that, or they have a certain bad diet, and they think that's why their flesh is not fit for us to eat. I'm not sure that's the reason at all. They shall be an abomination, verse 11. You shall not eat of their flesh, but you shall have their carcasses in abomination as a detestant or abhorrent thing to you. Whatsoever has no fins nor scales in the waters, that shall be an abomination unto you. And these are they which you shall have an abomination among the fowls. They shall not be eaten. They're an abomination. The eagle and the ossifrage, or the osprey, and these are various types of hawks and seahawks and so on. The vulture, and that, of course, is just the common turkey buzzard that we see out here in East Texas. And the kite, or the falcon, after his kind. Every crow or raven, after his kind. And the owl, and various types of birds are listed here, and sometimes the Hebrew is a little uncertain, so the owl seems to be mentioned several times. The cuckoo, which is unknown to us, but actually is an ostrich, apparently. And the hawk, after his kind, the little owl, the cormorant, we have those out in Lake Palestine. And the great owl, the swan is a mistranslation, that should not be there, that actually is a horned owl. Uh, a swan and a duck and a goose are perfectly uh, fine to eat and are not prohibited in this passage at all. The pelican, the gyre eagle, the stork, the heron, after her kind, the lapwing and the bat, all fowls that creep going upon all four. The only fowls that I know of today that are still extant are perhaps some types of bats that seem to have like feet projecting out of the forward shoulder of the wing and that actually will walk along the ground on all fours and are creeping as well as a flying fowl. It's called a fowl, but actually we know it's a rodent that flies, but they are not fit for us to eat. And isn't that a relief when you stop to think about it? Yet these may ye eat of every flying, creeping thing. Now, remember what I told you earlier. These may you eat of every flying, creeping thing that goes upon all four, which have legs above their feet, to leap wherewithal, or withal, upon the earth. Even these of them you may eat. So here's license to have a nice banquet. The locust after his kind, and the bald locust after his kind, and the beetle. Now, it says in my margin, cricket after his kind and the grasshopper after his kind. Now, you're asking, that surely can't mean what it's saying, can it? That really can't mean grasshoppers and locusts. Well, I'll tell you one thing, it doesn't mean cricket. Uh, that's a mistranslation. The marginal preference of the King James Version that says cricket is an error. It is a beetle and not a cricket uh, that is being mentioned here, but the beetle is a, is a word, and I'm going to give you those right quickly, out of Strong's, at least, just the one authority that I looked up. There are several others you could look at. Grasshopper comes from the Hebrew word arbe, A-R-B-E-H, is from another root that has to do with leaping, and it really means locust or insect or grasshopper or leafhopper that hops along on the grass, a common grasshopper that looks like it's been chewing tobacco when you pick it up and is an ugly-looking creature, and I wouldn't want to eat one because culturally... As I have been brought up in the United States of America, uh, and the kind of a diet that I've been on all my life, they just don't appeal to me. Uh, they did to John the Baptist. He existed on wild honey and locusts, and he ate them. Now, I don't know if you clean them. See, I don't know how to prepare them. I don't know if you squeeze them where all that stuff on the inside squirts out. You can't do it with a little fillet knife. I mean, that would take uh, a doctor and a microscope and a tiny little knife to, you know, do something with them. I don't think you just pull the legs off and eat the legs. I don't know what part of them you eat unless you just put them in a skillet and eat them the way they are, but it just it makes me sick to think about it. Now, what I'm trying to prove to you by this is that God tells you that there are some things clean and fine for you to eat that you don't want to eat. Now, isn't it nice 
that God doesn't say, you must eat these. We don't have the days of, you know, unfried or broiled crickets, for example. We have the days of unleavened bread, but we, where it says you shall eat unleavened bread, but we don't have a feast that is the feast of the grasshopper where God says you must eat grasshoppers seven days. Aren't you glad? Because, you know, that would really be a terrible trial for you if you had to. Now, bald locust is, believe it or not, from a root word from which Mount Seir or Selah comes. Because the root word is Selah, and it derives down to Solom, S-O-L-A-W-M is the phonetic way it would be pronounced. It's 1556 in Strong's. That from the sense of crushing as with a rock or consuming a kind of locust named from its destructiveness that comes in hordes and just completely devours fields in the Middle East, the bald locust. Now, when you find a great big locust about that big with a huge, big, bald, skinny-looking head with evil-looking eyes on it, sitting, sucking all the sap out of a green plant, that thing is edible, believe it or not. Perfectly all right for you to eat. But you see, I feel about bald locusts exactly like Benny feels about chickens. I can't stand the thought of eating a locust. And it just makes me sick to think about. But it is clean. The word beetle is 27, 28 in Strong's, and it comes from a word that's spelled C-H-E-R-G-O-L or cargoal, from a root meaning to leap suddenly, and means a leaping insect or a locust. should not be translated cricket. Crickets are unclean. Now, I think I know why. Crickets have intestinal parasites. Every now and then, my wife will kill crickets. She is a cricket killer par excellence. When we get them in our house, she takes her slipper. And you'll hear wham, wham, wham. You wonder what's going on. You think somebody's driving a nail. No, it's Cheryl after a cricket with her shoe. And those things are hard to kill. Sometimes you think they're dead and they're not. Well, a lot of times, we'd have a water, and she would drown them. We'd have a water dish for the dog. And if she didn't want to throw them out, maybe they'd jump in her back and I forget. But anyway, they'd end up in the water. She'd whack one, and I think it was dead, and she'd pick it up and throw it in the water. Next morning, you'd pull that cricket out of there, and there in that water glass, about that long, pencil thin, almost the, the, the size of just drawing a line on a piece of paper, was an evil-looking black worm just twisting and running, you know, just alive, but in that water and just living uh, that had come out of the insides of that cricket. And I've seen that happen many times. Many, many of the crickets that we've killed have had a big, evil-looking intestinal parasite of some kind. Makes me sick to think about it. So I'm really relieved uh, that that is not cricket in the original. But I'm still not that happy that it is a locust, come to think of it. Because I wouldn't want to eat, to eat either one of them, and I'm not sure what locust might have as, as parasitic uh, growth that might come from some way or another. Now, for some reason... In our society, we don't eat a lot of mice or rats. In China, they do. Uh, that is considered quite a delicacy. And, of course, if you were in a nation of maybe one billion-plus people and the population density was the way it is in China, and you were so poverty-stricken and dirt-poor that there were mice and rats running around and proliferate, you know, faster than rabbits do. They're one of the most rapidly procreative among all the animals and are everywhere common, plus the fact that they are a pest. And they can get quite big. You know, a great big rat can take on a tomcat. And uh, so they do eat them. Matter of fact, I remember when I was a boy visiting Chinatown in the 1930s in San Francisco and actually seeing dried rats or, or, or mice hanging up by their tails in the shops. And they would actually eat them right in San Francisco. Now, in our culture, we don't eat rats. So people don't want to argue with you about rats. The one... The three things they want to argue with you about to get around God's law is basically pork and secondarily, seafood. 
Those are the two areas that people, because culturally, those things don't look nasty to people. When I saw one time in a restaurant, people sitting there with these huge big snails that I had used to pick up under a bush when I was a kid, and they had lemon, and it was on a big plate, and they had this little two-pronged fork, and they were sitting there, and I was smelling this horrible odor, this steaming plate of something went by. My wife and I looked over there, a fine restaurant in Pasadena, and these people were eating these snails right out of the shell. I almost had to get up and go, and I may have chased a young lady, I don't know, but I don't want to chase anybody out of here today to get into that, but absolutely... That is awful. Now, I can go down to restaurants right here this afternoon in Tyler, Texas. There are several of them right down the road here, Johnny Casey's, and they will have these people in there working for hours before the evening, uh, Saturday night crowd comes, cracking, whacking these shells. I always like to stop and watch because they'll pick little bitty, oi, little bitty uh, pearls out of there. And every now and then clink, and I'd go to Johnny Casey's in uh, Longview, and I would hear them clinking in the bottom of the glass. And they would get these little bitty, rather imperfect seed pearls that were found in saltwater oysters that they were opening up to serve on the half shell raw. Now, sometimes they cooked them, but they just opened them up and have right there on their menu that our oysters slept in their own bed last night down there off the Gulf Coast somewhere, and they're scraped off the bottom of the Gulf Coast, and they're flown up here, and here they're all nice and fresh. Now, I've used those for, for bait a lot of times. I've used mussels and clams and oysters along the Oregon coast. And you crush those shells and you take that evil looking thing out of there and put that on a hook. And it's slimy and it stinks and it's awful. The idea of eating it doesn't appeal to me at all. But many people really want to argue with you about both swine's flesh and oysters and seafood and believe that that might be quite all right to eat. Some people want to say that because lobsters have armor plate, and great segments of hard shell-like material, almost like four or five times the hardness of an eggshell, and that it's kind of hinged and jointed. But isn't that a scale? No, it's not. It's not a scale. Uh, they want to say, well, that's got scale. It looks like a scale to me. Well, that's fine. You can reason that way if you want to, but it really isn't what the Bible means by scale. Now, on the other hand, many people in the church will not eat trout because they say trout is a skin fish. No, it's not. It's just that they don't have good enough glasses or can't see well enough. Their scales are very, very, very tiny and very fine, but they are a scaled, finned fish and very, very good to eat. I want to get some of the most common objections that people use. Now, believe it or not, in an account where Jesus healed a demoniac by casting a demon out of him, let's go to Luke in the New Testament, chapter 8 and verse 26, uh, Luke 8 and verse 26, People actually say, some of the churches do, including I believe the Baptist church believes this, that when this event took place, it actually meant the cleansing of swine's flesh. They arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, verse 26 of Luke 8, which is over against Galilee, and he went out there and there was a man who had been demon-possessed and he torn his clothes off and was living in the tombs, verse 27. When he saw Jesus, he cried out with a loud voice and fell down, and in a rather saucy tone apparently said, What have I to do with thee, or why are you here? Or, Jesus, thou Son of God most high, I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Oft times it had caught him, and it was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven to the devil in the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because the demons were many. There were many of them that had entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Strange language, and I confess I don't understand because I know very little about demons or the way they're 
mentality may work, and that's fine. That's all I want to know. I'd rather know the way Christ's mind works and to know that they are afraid of him. And there was a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them, and he suffered them. He permitted them. Now, why a demon wants to inhabit a warm, air-breathing mammal, flesh and blood uh, creature of some kind, I don't know, but they did, and he allowed them. So the demons went out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. Now, believe it or not, there's not one word said here about clean or unclean, is it? They're just called swine. There's not one word stated here about clean meats or unclean meats. But I have read this in some little tracts and publications in past years when I was in college that they believed that this was a symbolic washing and that because of casting these demons into these pigs, when these pigs went over the cliff and drowned in the lake, that from that time all swine's flesh is now cleansed in the waters of Galilee and is clean. Now, does it make a pig clean to have a normal, everyday pig that is not that much of an endearing animal, except maybe some of them are made into pets and will follow people along, can be trained and taught little tricks. But uh, pigs are a pretty nasty animal. But now, to make them a demon-possessed pig, does that make them clean? Because they're possessed of a demon, are they now clean? Now, secondly, remember, they drown. And when they drown, you know what drowning is? Drowning is suffocation. It is having this valve in your throat automatically just stop. You cannot ingest water until after you've been in the, the water for hours after you've drowned. And a lot of times people will come to the top because they will suffocate and the lungs will not fill with water, but actually will still be empty of anything except air. And later on as the body, of course, begins to expand, it might come to the top. My point is that God said any animal that died with the blood in it and that was strangled to death or suffocated was unclean if in, even if it was a clean animal. So their reasoning is really ridiculous. There were animals that were infested with demons and that died through suffocation or drowning. And believe it or not, great churches want to reason around that here's one way to get around what we just read in God's law in Leviticus 11 and the corresponding verses I didn't read in Deuteronomy 14. Mark 5 and verse 1 is basically the same account. I won't turn to that and read it, but it's the parallel account in Mark of the very same case of the lunatic being healed, the demons cast out, entering into the swine, and the whole herd being destroyed. In Mark 7 and verse 1, now, is a very important point, and I will refer you to the last issue of the International News and Mr. Dart's article about the law, where one subtitle deals with clean and unclean meats in that article and makes it very, very clear. They came together unto him certain of the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem, they saw some of his disciples eating bread with defiled, that is to say, very clearly, with unwashen hands. Now, the hands were not defiled because they'd touched a rodent, or they'd been petting their pet squirrel, or they'd touched a swine or something. They just had not washed immediately in front of that meal. They probably had washed earlier in the day, but they had not gone through a ceremonial cleansing, which the Pharisees did. They not only washed like you would normally wash your hands before you come to the dinner table, but they would do so through a ritualistic kind of a, a thing in front of each other and chanting certain things. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands often, and notice the margin, diligently up to the elbow is what it really means in the Greek. Eat not, holding the tradition of the elders, not God's law, but the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, 
which they have received to hold, or meaning which they have understood to be something they ought to do as a doctrine, as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not your disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands, ceremonially unclean, not necessarily grubby or caked with mud or dirty, but just ceremonially unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, like the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. And he went through a lot of examples of that. So finally he said in verse 14, when he had called all the people, he said, Listen to me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. That's a very broad statement. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile the man. A bullet, an arrow, your peck of dirt they say you're going to eat during your entire lifespan. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. What does that mean? Saliva? Earwax? Excrement? No, no, no. Just notice what he says. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. He went on a little later to teach them concerning this parable. Verse 18. He says to his disciples when they asked about it, Are you so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing that from without enters into the man, it cannot defile him? Because he's talking about the man. He's not talking about his digestive tract. He's not talking about his circulatory system. He's not talking about his stomach. He's not talking about the possibility of getting uh, diphtheria or dysentery or, or, or jaundice or yellow fever. He's talking about the psyche, about the personality, about the character of the man, about the whole man, the person, about his very character in the image of God. Anything whatsoever that enters into the man, it cannot defile him because it enters not into his heart. Now, of course, the heart is a muscle that merely is a pump that circulates blood, and we know that's a metaphorical statement that always means that portion of the mind that has to do with your will, your willpower, that portion of your mind that is your volition, the commitment that you have made to Almighty God that has to do with your character and your deepest convictions, your personality, spoken of as your heart. Because, you see, when you put a little bit of food into your mouth, and we are going to eat our peck of dirt, I don't care how careful we are, once in a great while you're eating a salad and you taste something kind of gritty and they didn't wash the lettuce well enough, a little tiny bit of dirt from the field, honest, good dirt, grit, maybe from a farmer's field, may find itself into a head of lettuce, and you may ingest a little bit of it, and it does not defile you. It is simply indigestible. The stomach will not digest it. It is not assumed into the bloodstream and carried by platelets to some cell somewhere. It is simply cast out in the elimination process that Almighty God designed. Because it enters not into his heart, but into the belly, and goes out into the draught, merely meaning the intestinal tract, purging all meats. Now, what does your intestine do when it gets hold of a nice chunk of New York cut steak? Does it cleanse it, for pity's sake? 
How in the world can church organizations in any conscience whatsoever seek to take this word, the word purging all meats, and then insert a secondary meaning in there which reads something like this the way they want it to read, the way translators have toyed with this phrase, quote, this said he, cleansing all meats, end quote. And that's their argument. The strongest place in the New Testament from which Sunday your son, some of your Sunday-keeping churches try to justify clams and lobsters and snails and, as I said, all the oysters and swine and all the rest of it, they don't want to justify bats. They don't necessarily want to justify snakes, although I see snakes are available in some of the uh, gourmet uh, foods, rattlesnakes and so on, or ants uh, with chocolate on them or whatever, but, but they want to justify the staple of the diet a lot of the southeast United States of catfish and pork. And so the way they do it is try to say, well, Christ meant that this cleanses all meats. That's not the subject here. Meats are not the subject. The subject is ceremonially defiled hands, whether or not you ingest a little dirt, and if you did, whether or not that defiles you in some way. There is no way one of those Pharisees would have had any unclean animal, a lapwing, a bat, a raven, a kite, an osprey, or a pig on his table and would never have even considered it because rigorously and religiously, even beyond all that that was required, they not only avoided the unclean, but they went through all these ablutions and washings and dedication of pots and vessels and so on and washing all the way up to the elbow, not only before every meal, but several times a day. So clean and unclean meats is not even being discussed here at all, but I will again refer you to the article, Mr. Dark wrote, which is in the current issue of the International News. And he said, For that which comes out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. And thoughts begin in the mind, not the stomach. Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, a very broad statement of every type, deceit, lasciviousness, which is licentiousness, or permission to do evil, an evil eye, meaning uh, hatred towards someone else and plotting vindictively to do something about it, blasphemy, pride, which is ego and vanity, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. So what Christ is talking about is something which defiles character, which is an evil motive, lasciviousness, all types of sins which actually are born in the mind and of the lusts and so on of the flesh and the mind. All these evil things come from within and they defile the man. Now, technically, even if you were to eat some unclean thing, does that defile you? The answer is absolutely not because that's included in the broad statement whatsoever you ingest or you eat. But God is not saying that he is giving you permission to simply give you license to break his law and to eat whatever appeals to you, whether it's on the one hand uh, pigs or, as I said, seafood or something else. This is not even being discussed in this chapter whatsoever. But he is saying that even if you were to ingest dirt or some sort of a poison which could take your life, you have not been defiled spiritually in God's sight. You may have been killed. Your body may have been polluted. Your body is going to be polluted if you eat swine's flesh bacon or, or pork. It's going to be polluted if you eat lobsters and clams and snails and so on, but it isn't going to kill you. 
There are many people, I'm sure, out here who are living on catfish and living on a diet of pork because it's cheaper meat than beef. And catfish is one of the cheapest fish to buy and the cheapest to raise. And some of the most popular restaurants in East Texas are some of these catfish places where they raise them in ponds with these pellets, which are full of chemicals, by the way, which cause rapidity of, uh, you know, fat being put on the fish. And they're kind of a mixture that is done by chemical laboratories of ground, all kinds of stuff, including chicken entrails. I won't go into all of that. But they feed the catfish things that catfish would normally eat. If a dead chicken fell into a stream, a catfish is going to feed on it, but so would brim and bass, let's face it. So, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with their diet, necessarily. But people can live to be 90, eating on a diet of catfish and seafood. I'm not contesting that one way or the other. I'm just asking what is God's law and what is the doctrine of Almighty God's church on this earth. I want to go to another scripture which is very important, one which is sometimes used as an alleged proof text to say that uh, it's all right to eat unclean meat. It's found in Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. Romans 14 and verse 1, and I'll have to hurry to get some of these in. Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations, or, as it should read, to take account of his weaknesses. One believes, who is weak, that he can eat herbs. I'm sorry, one believes that he may eat all things. All right, what does that mean? Does he mean that he believes that he can eat dirt or rocks or ground glass? Well, obviously not. It means that he can eat all edible things. It doesn't mean that you've got someone in the congregation that believes that, well, I, I, my, my opinion is that I can eat pork and I can eat seafood. It's not what it's saying. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church of Almighty God in the first century, largely made up of the Jewish colony, but par partially and, and perhaps in Rome, the bulk of them were by now Gentiles. And he is explaining about differences between dietary preferences having to do with vegetarianism or those who ate flesh. What kind of flesh is never brought up. The discussion as to what kind of meat is not once mentioned in this passage at all. Let not him that eats, eats all things, whatever is edible, despise him that eats not. And neither one is to judge the other because God has received him, he goes on. Who are you that judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. He goes into the business of a day, and I won't go into that because that is another subject, but one man esteems one day above another, and he says, Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Whether we live, verse 8, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. To this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But the point is, he is saying, why judge your brother? Why do you set at naught your brother on some preference or another as to his taste or his choice in whether or not he eats vegetables only or whether or not he eats meat? And believe it or not, people will do that in a congregation. They will judge one another because one woman might prefer makeup and another one might not prefer makeup. So they will simply be harshly sitting there criticizing and judging one another. One man might judge another because of his choice of a suit or a necktie. Or whether he drives a sports car instead of a pickup. He might think, well, that's a sign of vanity, and I don't think that's right. And people continually judge one another, and that is what is wrong. That's what the Apostle Paul is taking issue with. Don't judge one another. Within the broad parameters of the vast choices that God has set before us, on the table before which I will sit down and maybe take my plate and go along the line in the potluck, I got all kinds of choices. When I go down here to the cafeteria, I got dozens of choices. And I might judge, in quote, in my mind, the lady who goes by, 
who is already perhaps carrying a little bit more weight than she wishes she were, who might get noodles or might get macaroni and cheese or might get a nice big cream pie or might get bread and on and on. That's her choice. That's her preference. But on the other hand, she may judge me if I go by and get a little bit of lean fish and some carrots and only water to drink and maybe some cornbread for lunch. And my preference is to pass by the dessert bar, but it's there and I can have it and God allows it. Now, if I decide to be a vegetarian, I'm not going to that I know of, but if there were some reason why a doctor told me I should not eat meat anymore, I would have to take that out of my diet. Perfectly all right if I eat it, but it might be a preference of mine. We may have vegetarians in the church, I don't know, but they're more than welcome. And they're probably better off. Maybe they've discovered that red meats or certain meats are bad for them and they feel that there's a, a risk of cancer and they're going to be more healthy if they eat nothing but vegetable products. And that's fine. They're certainly welcome to that belief and they should not be judged because of that belief. Why do you set it not, your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he goes through that. Verse 13, Let us therefore judge not one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now, let's get down to it. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself but to him it esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now, do we believe that the Apostle Paul, first of all, has the right to set aside the laws of God? You've got to answer that question. Do you believe the Apostle Paul is a hypocrite? Or on the one hand, he said that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, persecuting his own countrymen, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, that he gave his voice in the Sanhedrin, and was a member of the Sanhedrin, that he was a Jew and was born of Jewish parents and came up in the Jewish community and all of his life practiced religiously as the Pharisees did the laws of rigorous avoidance of unclean meats and acceptance only of the clean meats. Is the Apostle Paul now hypocritically setting aside the very teachings of Almighty God and of Jesus Christ being a hypocrite about his own background, abandoning all of his pharisaical Jewishness and the background of all of his teaching and his religion, and now making a statement that seems to be rather vague and metaphorical, there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him it esteems anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean, and saying to you as Christians, well, if you think a clam is unclean, then it is. But if you don't think it's unclean, it's not. So it's quite all right to eat clam. Is that what he is saying? But if your brother be greed with your meat, now walk you not charitably. Destroy not him with your meat for whom Christ died. So he's talking about meat and meat that is perceived by a vegetarian to be unclean. What kind of meat? Whether it's meat of an ox or a lamb or meat of a pig is simply not mentioned in the context. As well it would not be, because of the simple fact that the Apostle Paul, as a Jew and a former Pharisee, is certainly going to be assumed to be implying that he's talking about edible meats, meats that Almighty God approves. Let not your good, verse 16, and I used to stress that because that simply proves that therefore meat in one's diet is spoken of in the Bible as good. Let not your good be evil spoken of. Now the important point, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Very important point. 
But there again, that cannot be used as an excuse to set aside the laws of God and to say, therefore, it's perfectly all right for me to break God's law and to eat unclean things because God is going to cause you to become accountable if you know better. To him it knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. If you know these things, said Christ, happy are you if you do them. Now, to those that are ignorant and don't know any better, I have to confess to you there are going to be millions of people who will be brought right into God's kingdom who ate swine's flesh and ate seafood and unclean things right up to the day of their repentance in the great tribulation and the time when they repent and so on and maybe even after that they won't know till someone teaches them or trains them or explains to them about the subject of clean and unclean meats. You're better off because you're going to avoid diseases and poor health and you're going to basically live longer and have better health if you obey God's dietary laws. But you're not going to lose salvation if you were ignorant of it and didn't know any better. And you cannot gain salvation if you are intelligent and aware and have just rigorously and religiously avoided all these things all your life and you think that's going to earn you salvation because it will not. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. I've seen people carry it to the extent that they're like prisoners. They cannot enjoy a meal in a restaurant. They've got to ask the waitress, well now, what about these saltine crackers? What brand are they? Then they've got to go home and type out a letter and write to the National Biscuit Company and ask, well, do you use lard in your products? It gets to the point that if you were to actually try to, to avoid any of the daily poison you ingest, the restaurants that bathe their lettuce and the formaldehyde to keep it green looking, I don't think you would ever eat out one day in your life and furthermore, most of the produce, even the green leafy vegetables, the apples from Washington, the oranges from Florida that you're going to get were raised on soil that had been prepared by chemical fertilizers, sprayed with herbicides and fungicides. The trees were sprayed with pesticides or a kind of a wax that actually sinks inside the apple. I don't care whether you're talking about fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, or the best beefsteak from Kansas City. The cow has been fed on pellets and a kind of a mash that includes chemicals, including steroids, which increase the fat content and marble the meat better, and so on. And we know that, and so we're just victims. That's why I asked the blessing over food with a double thought in mind. You also asked that God would protect you from ingesting various things, which Christ tells you will not defile the man, but you also hope that you won't die of a disease. But you would not only never eat out, you would grow all of your own food and your only fertilizer would be natural humus and, and manure and you would never spray it and you just fight the bugs, you know, by pinching them off the leaves, but you sure would not spray any of your vegetables and you would actually have to live in the way that maybe Eskimos do or people way up in, in Kurdistan or over in Russia somewhere who are living the way they did centuries and centuries ago and who have no modern methods for food production or preservation. So understand what is being spoken of and what is not being spoken of in this context. And I've got to hurry. I'm going to have to conclude and skip ahead and probably close uh, and talk about the other half of the subject of alcohol, alcoholic beverages at some other time. In Isaiah 66 and verse 17, let me just have you notice quickly that it says, and the time setting is very, very obvious here, by the way, that at the time of the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth, at the very time of the birth in one day, as it characterizes, of the church of God, verse 7, before she travailed, she brought forth, before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? And here is the metaphor, for as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children, all the persecution of the Jews down through the ages, the final great tribulation upon the Jewish people in Palestine, and the final conversion of the Jews, 
and then, of course, their assumption into the kingdom of God after the day of the Lord. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, showing restoration and showing the second coming of Christ and the beginning of the kingdom of God. Be glad with her, verse 10, all ye that love her, rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, etc. Verse 12, a picture of the millennial reign. I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream, etc. Now, at the time that this is done, verse 15, Behold, the Eternal will come with fire, with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. This is at the time, some point in time ahead of us. Is it a decade away, or 15 years, or 20? Longer than that? Shorter than that? I don't know, and I'm sure no one else knows either. But it's in this age and at this time. Notice what it says. The slain of the Eternal shall be many, verse 17, they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves for their ceremonial form of religion, a form of godliness that he talks about, in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination. What's that? Seafood. We proved that already. This is an abomination. And the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Eternal. God says, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed, and it is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So at the time of the establishment of the millennium, at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, God's law still says swine's flesh is unclean and will be deserving of God's judgments and penalties for sin. I know their works, their thoughts, etc., and notice there again the Gentiles then are coming to the isles afar off that have not heard of his fame, and verse 20, it shows the establishment of the kingdom of God, all of them gathering to the headquarters in Jerusalem. Verse 22, new heavens and new earth are discussed. The time setting of the prophecy is inescapable. It's at the time of the setting up of the kingdom of God, and eating swine's flesh and the abomination is still condemned. Isaiah 65 and verse 4, a preceding chapter. It talks about those who continually provoke God to anger, verse 3, that sacrifice in gardens and burn incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves, just like the demoniac that we read of, and some of the great churches of England and of Europe, which are filled with the tombs of dead people, and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things, like clam chowder, etc., etc., is in their vessels, and which say, Stand by thyself, don't come near to me, because I'm holier than thou. So they have a form of ceremonial religion, but God says these are some of the things they do. That's why the doctrine of the Church of God International, just like the parent organization and like its parent organization, which is the Church of God Seventh Day and the Church of God Seventh Day of the Oregon Conference long, long ago, and just like God's people down through the ages and the centuries, and like Noah at the time of the flood and the patriarchs by the time of Abraham, and all the Jewish race, and all the Jewish people, and all the house of Israel, including David and the entire dynasty of kings that came from that side of the Jewish family, who still sit on a throne over there in Israel, or the nation of Ephraim of England today, they have eschewed, or have abhorred, or have avoided swine's flesh and the abomination of seafood, and we still do it, and it is the doctrine of the Church of God International today. I haven't spoken on that before. As I've said, it's probably been 20-some years since I've talked about that subject. Some people, I think, had wondered, well, what is our stand on the subject of clean and unclean meats? And, of course, this lady wrote me a letter, which I've got to now answer with either an article or a lengthy letter of my own and try to generate some kind of an article that we can have as a booklet in stock so people know what is the teaching on that subject. But at least I hope it is cleared up.